0: It's Thursday, December 1st, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, was Mars once hit with an asteroid on the scale of Earth's own dino killer? Plus, what if there was a device that listened to your farts and let you know when you should go see a doctor? And the USDA program that is recognizing indigenous food ways. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. A new study has given further credence to the theory that three and a half billion years ago, Mars experienced a similar fate that Earth would many millions of years later. An enormous asteroid whose impact caused a mega tsunami and forever changed the landscape of the planet. Only in Mars's case, it wasn't dinosaurs who got wiped out. Now, not only that, but it turns out that the very first images we ever got back from the surface of Mars, from the Viking 1 lander in 1976, showed evidence of this mega-tsunami. We just didn't quite know it at the time. That evidence for such a huge event may have been there all along is kind of bittersweet. Viking 1 was the world's first successful interplanetary landing mission. Launching just six years after we landed on the moon, the Viking mission was a huge feat for NASA and a lot of hopes rode on it. But what the lander found was a bit underwhelming. It didn't find solid evidence of an ancient Martian ocean or much promise for life at all. IFL Science cites that underwhelm as one of the key reasons robotic and human missions to Mars were scaled back and delayed so substantially. After Viking in the late 70s, NASA didn't land another craft on the surface of Mars until 1997. But now, as enthusiasm has renewed around Mars and more and more discoveries like this recent study come out, we can appreciate how worthwhile those early missions were. The landing spot for Viking 1, Chrysoplanetia, was picked based on signs of water erosion in its deep chasms from photos taken by flybys by the earlier Mariner program in the 60s. Now, despite that, evidence for an ancient ocean wasn't exactly found. And this latest study, published today in the journal Scientific Reports, suggests that that evidence might have been swept away by two planet-scale tsunamis billions of years ago. Quoting IFL Science, The mega-tsunami hypothesis was proposed to explain the apparent absence of a Martian shoreline at a consistent elevation, which would be expected if Mars once had an ocean. Without tectonic plates, Mars would be unlikely to trigger such events internally, leaving asteroid impacts as the likely cause. On Earth, tectonic movements and erosion by wind and water have erased all craters older than 2.2 billion years. On Mars, however, craters last longer, and the paper makes the case that a 110-kilometer-wide or 70-mile-wide crater dates back to 3.4 billion years ago, the time when Mars was still wet, end quote. Lead author Alexis Rodriguez told New Scientist, quote, When we think of a tsunami, we think of a wave, a wall of water, approaching the shoreline and overrunning it. This would have been very different. You would have seen this massive wall of turbulent, reddish water, with some of it flying upwards and falling back into the wave along the rocks and soil and continuing from New Scientist, because Mars has lower gravity than Earth, the water and debris would fall more slowly than it does on Earth. The impact would have also generated a seismic wave propagating hundreds of kilometers around the crater, throwing dirt and rocks into the air, and creating a catastrophic flow of debris along with the wave. Very intriguing, definitely nothing to surf on, says Rodriguez. But if you have a debris flow, you have a lot of soil spread around. So if you actually landed there, you have a chance to sample the ancient marine sediments, end quote. So we've got the Viking 1 images from 1976 that, somewhat unexpectedly, didn't show a landscape transformed by a mega-flood, but rather a boulder-strewn plain, per Science Alert. And fast forward to 2016, Rodriguez led a team to determine that curiosity was the result of two different tsunamis that would have significantly transformed the landscape and any shoreline remnants of an ancient ocean. Then in 2019, Rodriguez and team identified the impact crater Lomonosov as the cause of the later of the two tsunamis, occurring about 3 billion years ago. But they were still on the hunt for a crater that could be responsible for the earlier tsunami from 3.5 billion years ago. Quoting Vice, while the remains of the older mega tsunami were clearly observable, Rodriguez and his colleagues had to painstakingly examine the Martian landscape to find a crater that matched the age of this flood. The search had to rule out buried craters that were older than the Martian Ocean and therefore could not produce a mega tsunami, while also excluding craters that were formed on top of the younger mega tsunami because these impacts occurred too late in Mars's history. After extensive examination, Pole Crater emerged as the perfect fit for all these parameters, opening a new window into this catastrophic event that sent Martian seawater and any life within it roiling for hundreds of miles across the planet, end quote. Pole Crater, named after sci-fi writer Frederick Pole, is just 560 miles from Planitia, the Viking 1 landing site. Now, the team ran a number of simulations to confirm their suspicions, finding two different scenarios which would have checked all the boxes. And one reason all of this is significant is that anywhere there was once an ocean is a great place to search for signs of ancient life. And to the extent that any scientists may have previously written this region of the planet off, this study shows it could still be a good spot to look. Rodriguez also added in a call with Vice, quote, I think that we have two distinct and very interesting astrobiological targets that come out of this study. The first one is obviously the Viking 1 landing site because we have this controversy, so it would be good to be able to resolve it. Second are the remains of mud volcanoes in this huge, dried-up ocean basin. There's a possibility that this mud volcanism was driven by the release of seawater trapped in the sediments, or gases connected to the evaporation of seawater, and obviously that has very interesting astrobiological implications. So there are lots of targets to understand the evolution of the ocean of Mars, its potential biochemistry, and the way that the environment changed within the ocean over time. End quote. In Puerto Rico, we call ourselves Boricua. We are proud, passionate, and full of life. On our island, adventure finds you. Strangers aren't strangers for long. The size of the audience doesn't change the beauty of the music, and we celebrate every last ray of sun it took a pandemic fueled shortage of toilet paper to convince some Americans to make any changes to their toilets more Americans than ever before installed bidets on their toilets for the first time and haven't looked back but what would it take to convince people to give their toilets even more bells and whistles? Maybe if your toilet could save your life? That's the intention of scientists who are working on low-cost devices that could monitor your urination, flatulence, and bowel movements for irregularities, letting you know when you might need to go get checked out. One team in particular, whose not-yet-peer-reviewed work was recently presented at the American Physical Society's annual Fluid Dynamics Conference and profiled by Max G. Levy in Inverse, is using sound to pick up on individual irregularities as well as to spot outbreaks of gastrointestinal diseases in communities. The Georgia Tech duo behind the project are relatively unlikely candidates for this work. David Ankal is a mechanical engineering PhD student and Maya Gatlin is an aerospace engineer. Yet their expertise has led them to create a mechanical device that can recreate the physics and acoustics of human bodily functions. They named their machine the Synthetic Human Acoustic Reproduction Testing Machine, or yes, shart. I mean, hey, you've got to have a bit of fun in this line of work. Quoting from Inverse, they began by sorting through publicly available audio and video of excretions, capturing the frequency spectrum from each and feeding it to a machine learning algorithm. Their AI then learned from all that doo-doo data until it was primed for shart machine testing. The shart machine is a couple of feet wide and has loads of nozzles and attachments. The team pumps water through the machine and records the sounds. They learned the physics behind the sound of each excretion and designed designed the device to simulate those same dynamics, tinkering with different attachments for each subsystem. A lot of thought went into each of the sounds, Gatlin says. There was a subsystem for each sound on this little machine. And it actually performs pretty well, she continues. Their algorithm identified the correct excretion event up to 98% of the time, according to early data, end quote. Now, why sound? Well, it's more accurate than self-reporting, and less invasive than a medical examination, or less gross than giving a stool sample. It can also be a first line of defense. You usually don't talk to a doctor until you think something's wrong, but if you've got a detector hooked up to your toilet and it gets to know your normal sounds, then it can let you know when something's off, perhaps before you've noticed. But beyond the individual usage, Ankel and Gatlin have been working with other researchers at the Georgia Tech Research Institute on helping detect outbreaks of gastrointestinal disease within communities. Quoting again from Inverse, Diarrheal diseases like cholera kill 500,000 children yearly, making them the third leading cause of child mortality worldwide. There's an outbreak and resurgence in Haiti as we speak, says Gatlin. Ramping up the detection of diseases would bolster treatment and prevent outbreaks, she explains. The goal is to combine the machine learning model with inexpensive sensors and deploy them in regions susceptible to outbreaks of diarrheal disease. And as we classify those events, we can start to collect that data, Gatlin says. It can say, hey, we're seeing an outbreak of lots of diarrhea, and then we can start to quickly diagnose what's going on in an area, end quote. It's not too different in concept from the National Wastewater Surveillance System that ramped up during the pandemic to help communities monitor for oncoming outbreaks of COVID-19. From analyzing sewage, experts around the world have realized that you can identify a surge before it peaks, therefore giving a community more time to prepare. Rollout of wastewater surveillance systems have been hampered by a number of logistical factors, however. If Ankel and Gatlin are able to make the small, low-cost device they're working towards successful, it could be easier to install in places versus needing a whole skilled team to go out and handle analysis of sewage. Now, all of this is incredibly early work, but it raises a number of intriguing ideas. You know, this kind of topic can be gross, or funny, or taboo to talk about, which is perhaps why it's historically been underutilized as a resource for learning more about public and individual health. So anything that's taking advantage of the wealth of information available from the sound and makeup of our bowel movements is likely to have big impacts. The shart could save so many lives. In Puerto Rico, we call ourselves Boricua. We are proud, passionate, and full of life. On our island, adventure finds you. Strangers aren't strangers for long. The size of the audience doesn't change the beauty of the music. And we celebrate every last ray of sun. Live Boricua. So yesterday I talked about the United Nations Intangible Cultural Heritage List and how the point of a skill, ritual, festival, or other tradition being added to the list is to help preserve it and thereby preserve the culture of a particular area or people— it's one of the many ways institutions can work to help preserve heritage. Another example would be the European Charter for Regional or Minority Languages, which has certain regulations on which languages are taught in schools, displayed on signs, etc., usually in an attempt to preserve language and continue passing it down. Today, I stumbled on another example of a sort tucked away on the U.S. Department of Agriculture's website is an incredible resource on indigenous food called the USDA Indigenous Food Sovereignty Initiative. It features recipes and instructional videos from multiple tribal nations, as well as guides on foraging, seed saving and more. The Daily Yonder explains the initiative as promoting quote, traditional foodways, Indian country food and agriculture markets, and indigenous health through foods tailored to American Indian slash Alaska Native dietary needs, end quote. Heather Dawn Thompson, director of the Office of Tribal Relations at USDA and a citizen of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe, told The Daily Yonder quote, Many of our forests are former tribal homelands. Many of them are still treaty lands, and many of them have sacred sites. And many tribes have agreements in their treaties about being able to have foraging access, hunting and fishing access. And so we're really trying to be thoughtful about that in our foraging policies, really looking at those. So that's one example. You know, one might not automatically think, what does this have to do with food and indigenous food sovereignty? But they fund infrastructure, including meat processing plants. One of the things that we heard was that a lot of tribes value mobile meat processing so that they can go out to where the animals are and honor them in the field rather than putting them on trailers and trucking them to stationary meat processing plants. So we're trying to incorporate that into our rules. End quote. That's one example from what is an incredible resource to learn more about the food and the land in various regions across the continent. The initiative is kicked off with the Mountain Plains and Southwest, but Northeast and Southeast are coming soon, followed by Alaska and Hawaii. Don Drillard, Culinary Director for Natives and the Indigenous Foods Lab, who helped oversee the production of the recipe videos and the coordination of foraged ingredients, told the Daily Yonder, quote, Our aim for the videos was to walk people of all experience levels through the steps needed to cook the recipes. We also wanted to add in a little bit of plant knowledge about the forageable plants that are featured in the recipes so people who might be trying cooking with these ingredients for the first time have a little more knowledge about where they can find these plants, how they can be harvested and used, and their health benefits. Our indigenous food lab takes a collaborative approach to recipe development, so we wanted to feature as many members of our team in the videos as possible. We only used foods from the food distribution program on Indian reservations list that we would consider pre-colonial, i.e. any foods that would have been available on the continent of the Americas prior to any colonial contact. We did utilize a few ingredients that would not be considered indigenous, but we tried very hard to keep our mission of primarily utilizing pre-colonial ingredients Whenever possible, we didn't use any eggs, wheat flour, sugar, pork, beef, or chicken, end quote. The final recipes were also tweaked to fit USDA criteria and nutritional standards, so it's a pretty cool collaboration to see. You know, given the long history of the U.S. government reneging on promises to indigenous communities and outright persecuting them, it's been refreshing to see the increasing number of official partnerships happening across multiple U.S. government departments in recent years. And this is just a really cool resource in general. Link in the show notes to explore it. Well, in case you missed it, our former producing partner Jason Kotke is back from his seven-month sabbatical and is officially posting daily on Kotke.org once again. And among the posts today was a quick explanation of something that I've been meaning to cover on this podcast for a few weeks, the fake Scorsese film invented via organic crowdsourcing on Tumblr called Goncharov. You can get a quick summary of exactly what the heck that means via Jason at the link in the show notes, and maybe, just maybe, I'll do a deeper dive soon. But that will be it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow.